You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. This is John 8, 31 through 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus did hid himself and went out of the temple. Okay, if you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. Thank you, Sarah, for reading that for us this morning. Uh, I found a story today back in 2004. There was a lady that walked into a clothing store called The Fashion Bug. And she gathered about $98 worth of merchandise and went to the front desk. And as she was about to pay, she handed the cashier a $200 bill. The cashier didn't really notice and put it in the register, gave her $102 in change, and off she went. When they came to count what the cashier had received, they realized that there was a fraudulent $200 bill in the till. 
Um, and as they, as the police began to research it, they realized that both the lady and the cashier thought that the bill was genuine. Uh, the bill obviously wasn't genuine because there is no $200 bill. Uh, it only appeared to be genuine as, as, as a casual look. But on the front of the bill was George W. Bush, who was the current president. No current president is on any currency. And on the back was a picture of the White House that had signs in the front yard that said, we like broccoli. Uh, so it was very clear that this was a fraudulent bill, but on a cursory look, it looked genuine. And today we want to look at um, genuine believers. Um, and what Jesus is talking about in, this, uh, in John chapter 8 is what defines authentic believers. Um, there, uh, if you look at John chapter 8, verse 30, the context of our passage today um, is uh, some people who have responded positively to Jesus's claim to be the light of the world. It's the middle of the Feast of the Tabernacles, and uh, at the apex of the ceremony, Jesus gets up and makes this uh, amazing declaration that he is the light of the world and that he is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. He is the, the true light and uh, that he is uh, the glory that fills the temple. This gets him in trouble, but it also, verse 30 says that there were some who believed. Now, in verse 31, we see Jesus begin to challenge these believers. Um, Jesus is not just interested in a casual belief. He wants authentic followers of Jesus. So kind of like that $200 bill, he is wanting to check the authenticity of these believers. And what we find as we look through this is that there are three things that mark, um, that mark authentic believers that Jesus will show us here. Um, I think it's on the next slide here. Authentic believers bear the marks of true discipleship. We'll see that here in a moment. And then after that, we see that they bear the family resemblance. And then lastly, they believe that Jesus is Yahweh. So that's the uh, route that we're going to be taking through this message today so that you can follow along in your Bibles. Uh, first of all, authentic believers bear the marks of true discipleship. Authentic believers in Jesus bear the marks of true discipleship. In verse 31, Jesus says this, he, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So we know that one of the marks of true discipleship is abiding in Christ's word. Abiding in Christ's word. The word abide there is the Greek word meno, which means remain or even live, live in the word of Christ. So Jesus' teachings and the and Jesus, the scriptures, um, all pointing to Jesus Christ, um, we are to abide, true disciples abide in him. And that's what Jesus says. That's the very first word he gives to these people. The moment they believe is he says, you need to abide in my word. You will prove to be true disciples if you abide in my word. Willow Creek Church is, uh, is one of the premier, premier uh, churches that promote the seeker-sensitive movement. And uh, what they did is as they were testing, um, they were reaching a lot of people. A lot of people were saying they believed in Jesus through coming through their, to their church. And uh, they began to do a study in the early 2000s of, of our people actually becoming disciples. They're attending our services. They're giving a positive response to Jesus. But are they really growing? And to their credit, this, uh, this survey and this research showed that most of their people were not growing spiritually. So they began to ask why. What is it? Uh, what is the common denominator? What is the key factor? What's the number one thing that promotes true discipleship that really causes people to grow spiritually? And the number one factor that they found in spiritual growth is Bible reading. 
That's number one. The number one factor in discipleship is Bible reading. And, uh, and they realized that they were not promoting enough Bible reading, Bible study within the life of their church. And so that just proves exactly what Jesus says here or validates, um, proves what Jesus said here, that abiding in Christ's word is what marks the true disciple. Another mark of true disciples, of true discipleship is knowing the truth. Now, this is obviously connected because he says, and you will know the truth, verse 31, and the truth will set you free. So by abiding in Christ's word, you will come to know, you will come to know the truth. Um, the phrase, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free is a pretty popular one in our culture. It's actually the motto of John Hopkins University, Ottawa University, and Southern Methodist University. It's also on the main building of the University of Texas campus. So higher of uh, Higher education um, learning institutions love this phrase by Jesus, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But what exactly does that phrase mean? In a secular sense, I think these universities are not, are not meaning the truth as in Jesus, but meaning truth. I think essentially what they're saying is that uh, good education will free you from ignorance. But is that what Jesus means? That just knowing true facts will set you free? I it's not exactly what Jesus means. Jesus doesn't mean any generic truth, but a specific truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is speaking about a particular truth. And if you look at verse 36, where he talks about the truth will set you free in verse 32, but then in verse 36, he says, it's the son that sets you free. So what we find is, is that the truth that frees is a person. It's Jesus. It's the Son. The Son sets free. Um, and uh, what exactly does the truth set us free from? What is it that Jesus set us, sets us free from? Well, we see that it is sin. Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So what Jesus means when he says, Abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is a person. It's Jesus. We abide in Jesus' word. We will come to know Jesus more and more and better and better, and through knowing the truth, becoming intimate with the truth, knowing and living in his word, we will be freed from slavery. And the slavery is sin. Jesus is addressing again and again here that our primary issue is sin. The freedom just Jesus offers is the freedom from practicing sin. Um, so this know the truth has the idea of being in personal infinite fellowship. It's not just a knowing of facts in the head but it's a relating to a person. It's, it's, it's the way you know someone. So when it comes to reading our Bibles, we want to read our Bibles looking for Jesus because it is Jesus's word. And that, and that through reading our Bibles and abiding in his word, we come to know Jesus better. And through knowing him, he sets us free from sin. So this kind of knowing is an intimate relational knowing, not just a textbook knowledge. Bree and I, when we were dating, uh, we exchanged a lot of letters, especially when we were, we met in college and spent a lot of time in college. But then when we were off in the summers, we would exchange a lot of emails and letters. And uh, I didn't read those letters because I was interested in knowing more facts about Bree. I read those letters because those facts helped me know her better. And we, we fell in love and grew in love because of our correspondence with one another. So I was reading them to know, but not just know in my head a bunch of facts, but to know a person. For instance, I know quite a bit about Tim Tebow. He was the Broncos quarterback. He won a couple national championships in Flo at Florida. Uh, he's 6'3", 240 pounds. He just recently married a former Miss Universe. I know a lot of facts about him, 
but I don't actually know Tim Tebow. And uh, what, what the reality is, is that there's a lot of people who know a lot of things about Jesus, but they haven't actually come to know the truth in a way that liberates them. They haven't come to know the truth as a person. They have good theology, they know a lot of good things, and that's great, but they don't know Jesus as a person. And Jesus came to be the truth, that we would abide in his word so that we would know him, and he would set us free. And the freedom we need is the freedom from sin, which brings us to our third mark of true discipleship which is living in freedom. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So do you ever think of sin as slavery? I think a lot of people think of sin as freedom. The things that God prohibits uh, as being freedom and the things that God asks of us of being slavery. But that's not the opinion of Jesus. Jesus says that sin is slavery. And if you don't feel that your sin is enslaving you, then you really have no interest in Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to affirm us in our sin. He came to set us free from our sin. Jesus doesn't, ha- doesn't offer any good news to someone who will not acknowledge their sin. That's the kind of freedom he came to give, was freedom from slavery of sin. And how do you know if you're slave to sin? You're practicing sin. That's what he says. The practice of sin, the identifying practice of sin, shows enslavement to sin, and Jesus came to liberate us from our sin. So here's an application for us. We need to align all of our life with Jesus. We are to abide in his word. That's what a disciple is. In the first century, there was a phrase that disciples would often say to one another, and it was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And what that means is that as your rabbi was walking along, the dust from his heels would kick up, and you are following him so closely. You are following behind him so closely that his dust is covering you. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you're truly my disciple, you'll abide in my word. You will soak up everything I have to say, everything that's said about me. You will abide in it. You won't just know it, but you'll abide in it. You'll live in it. And what will happen is you will come to know me, the truth. I will set you free from the practice of sin and you will live free. And verse 36, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Eternally free, truly free, irrevocably free. You cannot be nor call yourself a disciple if you don't forsake sin and abide in the word of Jesus. That's the only kind of believer that Jesus is interested in, is the one whose belief results in discipleship, in abiding in him, in knowing the truth, and living in freedom. Jesus uses the analogy here of a son and a slave. Both live in the house, both benefit from the production and protection of the house, but only one has the rightful claim to ownership of the house, and that's the son. The slave eventually will have to leave the house because he has no ownership there. So while he might be benefiting from the house, the slave has no rightful ownership. But the son has the authority to free the slave and to bring them into a co-owner of the house. That's what Jesus is saying here, is that the son is the rightful heir, And the slave, while benefiting from the house, is not the rightful heir. But if the son decides to liberate the slave and make him a brother, a co-heir, 
with the home, with the house, then he then belongs there just as the son belongs there. And that's the offer Jesus is making these believers. Is he saying that you are living enslaved to sin? And as the Jewish people, you have many great privileges. You have many great um, uh, benefits from being part of the people of God. But you're not actually a son. You're not actually part of the family unless I liberate you and make you part of the household. And that is the offer that he is giving them. Will you acknowledge your slavery? And will you come to the son and accept his free offer to be liberated from your bondage and be brought in as a co-heir of the home. That's the offer Jesus is making to these believers. So I, I want to pause here for just a moment and just wonder what, how that strikes you. Do you see your sin as enslaving you, as being your primary problem? Do you understand that believing in Jesus is to acknowledge your sin and the fact that you are unacceptable before a holy God and outside the household of God? But that Jesus is extending an offer right now. The rightful owner of the home is extending you an invitation to come into the family of God, to let go of the sin that you have been practicing and to come to him and to be brought into the house as a co-heir with him. The way that Jesus did this is by living a life of perfect righteousness that we did not live. Jesus was never enslaved by sin and conquered every temptation to sin. So that made him a suitable, uh, a suitable sacrifice for sin because he had no sin of his own to pay for. He could then be a payment for someone else because he's truly man. He can pay for the sins of mankind like you and me. And because he's fully God, his sin can extend to as many people as will believe. And on that cross, Jesus became our sin. And God poured out all of his wrath and justice on Jesus so that there is none left for those who will acknowledge their sin and look to Jesus in faith. Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is no longer enslaved by death and sin and proving that anyone that joins him in that free offer of being uh, forgiven uh, will be freed from their slavery and join him as the rightful son of the home. I wonder if you have believed that. I wonder if you are willing to acknowledge that, to humble yourself before Jesus and accept his offer, his offer to become a son of God, to join in the household of faith. I would encourage you to do that right now. These people who came to Jesus were intrigued, but as we'll find, they fell short. They were offended by Jesus' words that they were enslaved. And I pray that you would not be offended by the fact that Jesus is saying right now that there's something wrong, that you are enslaved, that you don't belong in the household of God, that you have no rightful claim to the promises and privileges of a holy God. But Jesus is saying, I do, and I will take you. I will bring you in. Let go of your sin and grab hold of Jesus and you will be made right with him. I pray that you'll do that right now. Charles Wesley has a great hymn that hits along these lines called, And Can It Be? And here's what he says. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, meaning he was lost and enslaved in sin, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon inflamed with light. My chains fell, fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And that's what Jesus offers us. 
if we will recognize that we are enslaved by our sin and Jesus is the liberator. And if we abide in his word, we will come to know him as the truth and that truth will set us free. Free to live in his light. Now here's what happens is when Jesus says this to these believers, these Jewish believers from verse 30, they become enraged. They become enraged. If you look at verse 33, um, it says, wrong page, verse 33. They answered, we are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they become offended right out of the gate. They have just decided that they believe in Jesus. Jesus says, you need to abide in my word and I will set you free. And they go, wait a minute, we're already free. What do you mean we're in bondage? We're the children of Abraham. We're the privileged children of God. We have the family heritage. We have always grown up the people of God. How dare you, Jesus? How dare you think that we would need your liberation? And they immediately take offense. And that results in a paternity dispute, so to speak, where they begin to argue with one another about who their true father really is. They say, we're the sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, you're not. Your character and your behavior and your response to me proves that you are not. You do not bear resemblance to your father. And, and in that, he shows us that uh, authentic believers bear the family resemblance, particularly of Abraham. And they shoot right back at him. They accuse him of being, um, of, of being the result of sexual immorality. They accuse him of being a Samaritan. They accuse him of being demonic. And so this... this um, discussion gets very heated very quickly. And again, this is people who have responded positively to Jesus and they're already taking issue with him. They're already proving that they are not true disciples. But authentic disciples do bear the family resemblance. Look at verses 37 through uh, 49. It says this. He says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham and he means that biologically. Yet you seek to kill me because your word, my word, finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So again, we've got the paternity issue happening here. They answered, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Isn't that interesting? The, the works that Abraham did. So Jesus is saying, yes, you have biological heritage to Abraham, but you bear no spiritual resemblance to him at all. If you've seen any pictures of my son Micah um, and pictures of me at the same age, he and I look very much the same. The, rea the reality is, is that we, um, he is my son. Um, and so he bears resemblance to me. And what's uncanny is that he actually bears resemblance in me, not just physically, but in his behavior and his attitudes and the way he responds to things. He, he not just physically resembles me, but he actually in, in just about every way resembles me because he is my offspring. And what Jesus is saying is that you bear no spiritual resemblance to Abraham. You are claiming him as your biological father and your spiritual father and the reason that you have standing before God. But he's like, you're, you bear no resemblance to him at all. In fact, you bear more resemblance to Satan. He says, if you were the true children of Abraham, you would bear resemblance to him. And, and so we need to ask, what are the works that Abraham did that Jesus expects them to resemble? Um, in order for us to understand this, I need to introduce you to two characters. One is Abraham and the other is Satan. 
Abraham lived 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years before Jesus. He's first introduced to us in Genesis chapter 12. And what happens is he is a man who is living in Ur, which would be modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. And he is a pagan man of about 75 years old when God all of a sudden calls him. And he says, Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I need you to pack up your family and move. Because I am going to give you a son, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through your offspring. Now the catch is, is that Abraham and his wife Sarai um, have been unable to have children. So he is 75, she is 65, and they have never yet been able to have children. And so God makes this absurd promise to them that they are going to have a son, which is going to have to be a miracle. And, uh, and from that son, God is going to make them a great nation and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham believes God. He puts away his idols, he puts away all of his paganism, and he begins to follow this God who has called him. And he moves to this new land and he follows, he trusts what God has said about him. So, father, so Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish people. And he's considered the father of faith. Um, and so he is held up in the Bible as the, um, the prime example of faith in God, saving faith in God. In fact, it says that he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. God took his simple faith in the promises and granted him right standing before God, which is how God saves all of us is that faith in the promise of what Jesus has done makes us right with God. And Abraham was the first one that we see in the scriptures where he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Satan, on the other hand, is the other character that plays very prominently in this uh, story. Satan is an angelic being of the highest order who rebelled against God. And he lied to Adam and Eve, corrupting God's words and led the human race, and indeed the whole world into sin and corruption and death. Satan is a liar and a murderer. And so this dispute is about who is their true father. Who is the true father of these people? And how can you tell? These offended people really go after Jesus. They say he is illegitimate. Verse 41, we were, born, we were not born of sexual immorality, which is, which is pointing to the controversy around Mary being conceived as a virgin. And they go, how could that be? And they also accuse him of being a Samaritan and a demon. So they go after Jesus's, um, Jesus's father, uh, who he's the son of, and they're discrediting him. Jesus says, no, my father is God. And, and so uh, he turns it back around on them. And he says, no, your character shows that while biological descendants of Abraham, you bear no spiritual resemblance to him. In fact, you resemble Satan. Your spiritual father is Satan. He's your real spiritual father. Look at verse 38. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you heard from your father. He says, the reason we're in conflict here is because I am the son of God, and you are the children of Satan. They answered, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So they're bearing no resemblance to those who have trusted in Jesus or to those who have trusted in God and his promises. I want to look for just a moment at some of the works Abraham did. I think there's four key passages in Genesis that show us exactly how, how Abraham um, how Abraham responded to God and how 
he sets a model for us and how we should respond to God. Abraham was not perfect by any means. He failed many, many times. But I think these four characteristics are what Jesus is talking about. In Genesis 15, 1 through 6, we see that God renews his promise to Abraham that his descendants would be like the, sun, the stars in the sky and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And it would take 15 years before God would, would, um, would honor that promise, would bring the son Isaac to, to uh, Abraham and Sarah. But in Genesis 15, we see that he trusted the words of God. So Abraham, the works of Abraham are trusting in the works of God. Verse 6 says, he believed the Lord and it counted him as righteousness. So the works of Abraham is one, trust. Number two, in, in Genesis 18, 1 through 8, there are these heavenly messengers that God sends to Abraham. And Abraham recognizes them as from God and welcomes them into his tent. So the welcoming of the heavenly visitor. Welcoming of the heavenly visitor. Now, if you think, Jesus is talking to these people and, and they are not welcoming him as the heavenly visitor. They are not doing the works of Abraham. They are not trusting what Jesus is saying. They are not welcoming the heavenly visitor. And then in Genesis 14, we see that a, a mysterious priest named Melchizedek shows up. And he is called a priest of the Most High God. Some scholars even think that maybe this is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. What happens is, is that when Abraham encounters this priest of a high God, he honors him and pays a tenth to him. So we see that the works Abraham did are trust and welcome and honor. And then in Genesis 22, 1 through 18, we see that Abraham was radically obedient to God when God asked that he would sacrifice the long-awaited son on an altar to God. And he didn't end up having to sacrifice that son, but he was willing to radically obey the word of God. So the works Abraham did are trust, welcome, honor, and obedience. That's what marks Abraham. And Jesus is saying that's what should mark you if you are a genuine believer. If you're a true disciple, then your response to God is trust in the words of God, welcoming him into your life, honoring, honoring him and those that he places in leadership over you and radical obedience to whatever God does. Now, as he's interacting with these people and he's saying, this is what true discipleship looks like. This is what genuine belief does. He says, you're not doing that at all. Here's what he says in verse 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here welcoming the heavenly visitor. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I said? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And look, Jesus describes what, what Satan is like. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So you see contrasted here, the family resemblance of Abraham is trust in the promises of God, welcoming the heavenly visitor, honor of those in spiritual authority and radical obedience to whatever Jesus says. But Satan, Satan is a liar, a murderer, hates the truth, hates God and is marked by disobedience. And so what Jesus is saying is like, just look at your life. Look at how you're responding to me. You claim to be the people of God, but spiritually, look at yourselves. Which father, which one is the more likely father? They, they do not like the truth. They will not come to him. 
They're proving that they are spiritually of their father, Satan. It's a strong statement. He's making a strong statement. But here's what we see is that true believers bear the marks of true discipleship and they bear the family resemblance. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But I want to point out one more thing in um, in verses 48 through 59. We have the key question in verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? So they go, Jesus, who, who are you? What is your identity? And Jesus basically goes on to answer the question in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. That's a massive statement because back in the Old Testament, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, when God is about to deliver Abraham's children from the nation of Egypt and Moses is at the burning bush and he says, when I go to the people, they're going to want to know your name and God, what is your name? And he says, tell them I am who I am, Yahweh, which means I am. So when Jesus is saying this, he's talking about how the fact that he and Abraham actually have a relationship with one another. (laughs) And they're like, how is that possible? You're not even 50 years old and you know Abraham who died 2000 years ago. And Jesus is saying essentially the reason that I know Abraham and he knows me is because I am the I am. I am Yahweh. So so authentic believers believe that Jesus is Yahweh. That's why they pick up stones to stone him is because they don't believe he's Yahweh. When he says I am, he is saying that I am Yahweh. I am the covenant God of Israel. And here's what, here is what we see as we just look at this entire passage. We see that Jesus is the truth. Verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is the son. Chapter 8, verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He is the promised son of Abraham, but ultimately he is the son of God made flesh. We see that Jesus is the father's glory. Check this out in verse 50. He says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. And what he's saying is that I don't glorify myself. The father glorifies me. In fact, Jesus at his baptism, the heavens open up and the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So it, so the father loves to glorify the son. The son loves to glorify the father. The spirit loves to glorify the son and the spirit loves to glorify the father. So in that sense, Jesus is the father's glory made manifest and clearly in front of us, the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and Jesus is the face of God before us. Look at it. We also see that Jesus is Abraham's joy. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. There's a lot of mystery about what this means, but in a sense, the faith that Abraham had that God would keep his promise was all, always ultimately not just in Isaac, but in Jesus. He longed for the day. And so in that sense, Abraham's joy is Jesus. And then lastly, Jesus is the I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I wasn't just a contemporary of Abraham. I existed long before him. I am the preexistent one. I am the eternal covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. And there was no doubt, no doubt at all, that they understood what he meant. Because these people who just in verse 30 were believing in him, now want to pick up their stone, pick up stones to throw at him. And they're proving that they're not children of Abraham. They're murderous children of Satan, spiritually 
They would not leave their slavery of sin. And they would not put their trust in Jesus. They would not abide in his word. They would not bear the family resemblance. They would not believe that Jesus is Yahweh. These disciples, in a sense, were like the $200 bill, proving fraudulent almost immediately. Interested in Jesus on the front end, but the moment that Jesus began to to lead them and guide them, they began pushing against him. And by verse 59, they want to kill him. They respond warmly at first, but as soon as Jesus makes demands, they're out. Doesn't Jesus know he's not supposed to judge? Doesn't Jesus know he's supposed to accept us as we are? Where's the grace, Jesus? They refuse to believe he's Yahweh. They resemble Satan, not Abraham. They refuse to abide. They refuse to know the truth. They refuse to let go of their sin of self-reliance. They refuse to let go of the fact that they think they're just fine as the biological children of Abraham. And they totally miss Jesus. In fact, they want to murder him. There are, are in a sense, the $200 bill. From a distance, it looks real, but upon close examination is, is worthless. So I have a couple of questions for you. The first question is this, is has the Son set you free? This is what freedom looks like. Freedom looks like coming to Jesus, abiding in his word, believing what the word says about him. And then in believing what he says and filling our whole life with his word, we begin to know the truth and we're beginning to release from the power of our sin. We are already, the moment we put our trust in Jesus, we're already forgiven of our sin immediately. But the victory over sin comes over time and it comes through abiding in him and walking with him and knowing him. It's not like we try to set ourselves free. You could hear a message like this and try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try to really work harder, but it's the son that sets free, not us. But when he sets us free, what's it look like? It looks like abiding in him. That's what freedom looks like. It looks like knowing the truth. It looks like progressive victory over sin and beginning to look more like our spiritual parents, looking more like Abraham, responding to God in faith, responding to him, welcoming Jesus into our life and every part of it, honoring other believers and honoring those who lead us spiritually and radical obedience in him. We begin to look like our father Abraham and we, get to put, we begin to put lies and hatred and disobedience away. We are no longer looking like the children of Satan. We're beginning to look like the children of God, the children of Abraham. So freedom comes only through repentance and faith. Um, it's interesting. I, I found a, um, an interesting um, discovery. Uh, there's a thing called the primate trap. And what they do is it's a coconut that has some rice inside of it and there's a small hole and the hole is just large enough for the monkey to reach his hand in. But as soon as he grabs the rice, he's unable to get it out. And if you tie that coconut to something, that monkey will never let go. And he'll actually wonder where his hand is. But he'll never let go of that rice. And so what happens is, is that he will so cling to that rice that he will actually lay there and die or he can easily be captured. Because he, he wants so much and he cannot understand um, how to get free. And I think that's true of so many of us, is that we have something in our hand that is keeping us from being free. And Jesus is coming and he's saying, you have to let go of that. If you don't let go of that, you will die in your sin. You will be enslaved for the rest of your life. You'll be sla- enslaved into eternity. And what these guys do is you have to let go of your trust in the biological heritage of Abraham, 
They were trusting in their spiritual legacy. And the moment that Jesus said, that's become an idol to you. That's actually enslaving you. They wanted to kill him. They would not be free because they thought they were fine. And Jesus says, you cannot be free until you let go. And so I don't know what it is in your hand, what it is you're trusting in. Maybe it's spiritual heritage, the fact that you grew up in a Christian family. Maybe the fact that you've grown up in America. Maybe the fact that you know a lot of Bible verses or the fact that you were baptized. I don't know what it is. But it may be that clinging on to that is keeping you from being free because you're trusting in that and not trusting in Jesus. And he says, you have to let go. You have to let go of that sin. No matter how painful it is, it's enslaving you. So let go of that and come to me. And there'll be one of two options. We'll either discredit him and even want him to just be out of our lives like here, or we'll let go and we'll have true freedom. We have to let go of those things to be free. Freedom is defined by Jesus as abiding in his word, coming to know the truth, doing good theology so that we can know and love and worship Jesus, leaving our sin behind, letting go so that we can be free, joining the long line of faithful believers through history, trusting in his promises, welcoming Jesus into our life, honoring those who, who he has brought to lead us, uh, obeying anything that he asks us to do. That is what Jesus says is true freedom. And if we don't recognize that and see that as free, then we are surely still enslaved. And so here's the question. Here's my second question. Will you commit to living in his freedom with us? As a church, we are committed to not being just casual followers of Jesus, like the people in, in, in chapter 8, verse 30, like the people addressed here. We want to bear the marks of being authentic believers. That's why in our church, we want the word of God to saturate everything. We want to abide in the word of Christ. And we want to know the truth. We want to know Jesus together. And we want to help one another overcome sin, which is why we make a church covenant with one another. If you haven't been to our website and seen our church covenant, all it is is a summary of how we want to live our life together. Christianity cannot be done alone. We cannot accomplish these things on our own. So when we come to Jesus, we're also brought into a family. We're brought into a household and we pursue true, authentic discipleship together. I would love for us to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 11, I think, outlines well for us what, uh, what is described in this passage. We have, in Hebrews chapter 11, we have a listing of all of the faithful members of God's family down through the Old Testament. And so it's like this bearing resemblance to our faith family. Um, chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their con commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, and that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then he begins to, to recount the faithfulness of our spiritual parents. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed and was called to go out to a place and receive an inheritance. By faith, he went to live in the land. And he, it goes on and on, talks about the faith of Sarah and, it, and the faith um, of Isaac, the faith of Moses, the faith of the people that crossed the Red Sea. And then you get to verse 39. It talks about faith in hard times, faith in, in good times. And uh, you see this lineage of faith being passed down, this family resemblance that has been going down through the people of God. And verse 39 of chapter 11, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
That means that those Old Testament saints, all the people down through church history, everyone who has died a faithful, authentic believer in God is waiting for the new heavens and the new earth because they're waiting for us. Because we're going to enter into the new heavens and the new earth as a community. And the local church is an expression of that community now. And so here's what he says, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, all of these who have gone before us in faith, let us lay aside, lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, which sounds very similar to what Jesus said, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, abiding in his word, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The words there are we and us. It doesn't say you run your race. He says, let us run our race. And that's what the local church is meant to be, is for us to be authentic believers together, abiding in the word of Christ, knowing the truth of Jesus Christ, being freed from sin together, bearing the family resemblance and believing that Jesus is our Yahweh. He is our God. He is our covenant-keeping eternal one who brings us into his family. So we encourage you, to become a member of our church, to make a credible profession of faith, be baptized into the family of God and covenant with us, and we will become authentic disciples together. So I pray that that's the case, that as you look at this text, that if you are an authentic believer, you're encouraged and you're stirred. And if you are not an authentic believer, I pray that you would be convicted and that you would let go of whatever it is you're trusting in and be free, free to follow Jesus, free to abide in him, free from sin, free to be transformed into his image and be part of the family of God. I pray that that is uh, where you will end up today. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. And while this conflict of, with Jesus and these so-called believers was intense, it teaches us so many things, Lord. And I pray that we would not be the kind of believers that are seen here, that we would not... Um, resist your leading and your teaching in your life, uh, in our life. God, that we would be true disciples, that we would be covered in the dust of our rabbi, that we would be following so close and delighting in you and trusting in you that we would live genuinely free. Lord, help us to let go of whatever it is that's keeping us enslaved. And may we follow you with all of our might. And may we do it together, God. We ask these things in your name. Amen. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing 
The Father turned His face away As wounds which mar the chosen Bring many sons to glory Okay. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Thank you uh, for joining us and for reading scripture. And um, yeah, so it's the Q&A time. Did yes. you, did any questions pop up for you or on the, on the website? I, I didn't see any, but. Okay. Um, what did Jesus mean in verse 51 that those who keep, that those who keep his word won't taste death? Ooh, yeah. We kind of skipped over that part. Um Yep, so is that that's verse 51 you said? Uh, yes. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then this is how they respond. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? So they're saying every great, every great man of God has died. So what makes you think you're so different? And, and that's a pretty crazy thing to think that not just I won't um, be defeated by death, but those who trust in me won't either. So um, I think it's obvious that it's not spiritual death because obviously as they talk about, it is 
Um, but I think it is talking about a spiritual death. And then the ultimate end of death is that um, Jesus died and rose again. So he tasted death, but he wasn't finally dead. He was resurrected. I think also those who trust in Jesus will be resurrected. They won't, they won't stay dead. So I think that's what he's talking about. And I think he's talking about his identity, that he is the eternal life-giving one. So I think he's speaking of spiritual death and then ultimately the fact that all will be raised um, through him. So that's what I, that's what I think. Cool. Um, and then in verse 58, Jesus mm-hmm. makes a claim. And what does that mean for other religions? Yeah, so it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, which does go back to the book of Exodus, like I said, when Yahweh is asked what his name is, he says, Yahweh, which means I am. So Jesus is clearly saying, before Abraham was, I am. So even before Moses heard the name of God, that was Jesus even before Abraham. So, um, So this is the claim that the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament is Jesus. So what that means then is that if you just think about um, some other religions, uh, I wrote a few down because I was expecting this question. (laughs) But Jehovah's Witnesses um, say that Jesus is the archangel Michael. So the fact that Jesus would say, I am Yahweh, would mean that Jehovah's Witnesses aren't right on Jesus. Uh, uh, Muslims believe that Jesus is an exalted human prophet, but would be very much offended thinking that he is Yahweh or Allah to them. Um, So that means that Muslims get Jesus wrong. Mormons believe that Jesus is the first spiritual child of Yahweh and the spirit mother. Okay, (laughs) but not Yahweh. So no Muslim would be able to or uh, Mormon would be able to embrace Jesus' statement here that he is Yahweh. Um, So that means that Mormons get Jesus wrong. Um, The Jewish people, obviously, we see them in this book, are reacting against Jesus, want to put him to death. They just think he's a lunatic man Mm -hmm. who says some intriguing things sometimes. So what that means for that verse is that um, Jesus did claim to be the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, and that pretty much creates an irresolvable contradiction with Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Judaism. Because if you get Jesus wrong, then you're not part of the people of God. And that's what he says. If you abide in my word, you will be set free. And only the son can bring you into the household. You're a slave to sin, right? That early part of chapter, verse 32. If the son doesn't set you free and what freedom looks like is abiding my word. And if, if his word means believing that he's the God Yahweh, that means that all of those other religions we mentioned are still enslaved in their sin because they don't abide in the word of Jesus. So it's a strong statement. Yeah, that is. Verse 58 is a, um, is a ma- major statement. Um, that eliminates a lot of people who claim to follow God. So, cool. Well, that's all I have. Did you have a question, Dylan? Back there? I don't think, I didn't see any online. If there was some online, I apologize if I didn't see them. Maybe I'll glance real quickly right now if you'll bear with me. Um, happy to answer questions after the fact as well. So, if I do see one, I would be happy to follow up um, with that. Uh, just a quick check here. I don't see any. Um, okay. So, um, 
I think that's it. <laughs> do I have any questions for me is what I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah do I have any questions? What the heck was that sermon? Um, no, let's uh, let's transition now. We've we've closed our service with uh, just an interview with different um, members of our church. And um, so it's your turn. Sweet. Thanks for coming. <laughs> You're so I'm tell us about here. tell us about how you grew up and how you came to know Jesus. Yeah. Um, so I grew up right here in Rapid City uh, my entire life. Um, lived for like a minute in Belfouche and a minute in Hill City. Um, but I grew up in a Christian household, um, Christian grandparents even on both sides. Um, so came to South Canyon my entire life until Redeeming Grace and was just taught the gospel in and out of my home, taught how, how to pray, taught how to read my Bible um, as a very young child. And so those disciplines were instilled in me super young. Um, it wasn't until I was probably 13 or 14, right around my freshman year of high school, that I, um, I really came to understand for myself what that meant. Um, I believe that I had accepted Jesus younger than that, um, probably somewhere between like four to six. But really, um, that summer um, after my freshman year was really when I was like, okay, I, this is something I have to take seriously, um, not just something I do with my family, not just something um, I do because my parents ask me about it, um, but something that I wanted to start really investigating the questions that I had about Jesus and about God and how how that all worked and what that meant for me. Um, and so it was that summer that I really um, leaned into what God was saying to me and what God was calling me to um, and really made my faith my own. Um, high school was great. I was able to grow um, grow in my faith because of mentors that were in my life. Um, and Davina, Davina Peterman, really um, led me in how to study my Bible. Um, in an effective way and even how to teach my friends, my peers, um, what it looked like to study a Bible and to, um, to listen for what God has to say. Um, and then my freshman year of college is really when things became really challenging. Um, I hadn't really experienced anything that had shaken my faith in any way. Um, my freshman year of college was different than I thought it was going to be, than I had expected. Um, and I kind of sunk into a pretty deep depression that year. Um, I went to two and a half more years of, well, two and a half years total of college um, at Black Hill State and ended up dropping out my junior year um, just because of, I just didn't know what the point was anymore of going to school and I just felt so much anxiety around school and um, people and friends and um, really started to doubt my worth um, and started to believe a lot of lies about myself that obviously aren't true in the Bible, like God says all these things um, about who we are when we're a new creation. And I started to believe all the opposite things of that. Um, and I started to doubt if God loved me, and I started to doubt if God was good and if God was kind. Um, I never doubted his existence or that, um, or that I could talk to him, but I just doubted that he cared about me. Um, and that whole time, um, Romans 8, 37 through 39, that we are more than conquerors, mm -hmm. And that um, there is nothing in the whole world that will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Um, I held on to that kind of as like my go-to and my reminder of who God was. Um, and throughout this time, I had friends and family who were loving on me. Um, so it wasn't that I lacked um, love from people in my life, but just that I doubted God's love for me. Um, and so just through um, a lot of prayer and conversations and even... Um, help medical help for depression I was able to um, just start to see joy um, that the Lord was putting in my life um, through people and through friends and through 
um, experiences that he was giving me and um, in the word of God, just his promises that every single promise he made came true in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that like, if he promised that he, his promise that he loved me was also true. Like it couldn't Mm -hmm. not be in reflection. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, Tell us about kind of your life right now. Yeah. What you do for a living, how you serve in God's kingdom. Tell us about Um, Sarah today. Sarah today. Sarah 2020. (laughs) Corona yikes. Um, So I work for Young Life, um, which is a um, organization, a ministry that introduces adolescents to Christ. And um, our goal is to help them grow in their faith after that. Um, and so I particularly, I work right here in Rapid City. Um, right now I am working with Stevens High School and then in the future I'll be also working with Douglas High School. Um, and so we, we have a bunch of volunteer leaders also here in Rapid, we have about 40 of them and we go where kids are at, um, and introduce them to Jesus and what a life with Jesus would look like. Um, and then if they choose to accept Jesus, we lead them on in faith and in all of those, um, those disciplines that come with that and being in scripture and, um, being a part of a church and, um, growing together in a community. And so, yeah, that's what I get to do. And it's awesome. And I love it. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And you've served basically your whole life in the church with yeah. your family and in student ministry for, for low these many years. So, many right? years. so, so grateful for I that. Love it. And thankful for your um, your presence in those business ministries and the presence in the girls' lives. And now as a full-time staff member, you lead a lot of the volunteers and stuff. And yeah. So so grateful. Grateful for your ministry, and you're very good at it. So <laughs> thank you for serving the Lord in that way. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks all for right. thank uh, sharing with us for a few minutes and for being helping out with our service today. Uh, I hope that this service has blessed you today. And uh, if you do have any questions Uh, please let us know. Also, redeeminggrace.info is the place to go to find information. And also, if you don't mind, we would love for you to leave some information and a prayer request. We would love to follow up with you and just know how we can be praying for you and stay connected with you. And uh, our benediction today comes from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. And here's what it says. It says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I hope that's true of you this week. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.